Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You are listening to Linux in the Hampshire. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello and welcome, everybody. You have tuned in to episode number 301 of Linux in the Hampshire. I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. We have a great episode and a great interview tonight about a great project, and we're going to talk about that. I, I hate the fact that I'm using great in the way that Donald Trump uses it, so let's stop doing that and instead tell everybody who's here. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD. All right, and our special guest for tonight is the, uh, well, we're going to find out exactly what he is in a minute, but who he is is Andy Taylor, MW0MWZ or Zed, as they say over in Wales. Uh, welcome to the program, Andy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, uh, most most certainly nice to have had the, uh, the invite. Well, it's most certainly nice that you've decided to accept our invite. We are always worried that when we put out an invite that people will say, no, go away, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> or who are you and where are you from? Or any of those other questions that we don't like to answer. But anyway, thank you for being here, and we're going to talk to you tonight about a project that you're very deep into, and you're going to tell us exactly how deep in a minute, but that is the Pi Star project, which is a project for creating Raspberry Pi-based digital mode hotspots for operating on amateur radio, which is all the rage these days digital modes are, uh, whether it's FT4 or DMR or System Fusion or any of the other ones. So I guess we need to start with you because you're the man of the hour, so to speak. So if you want to tell us a little bit about your background uh, in amateur radio and maybe how you got into uh, doing digital modes in the Five Star Project. Okay, well, I guess the best place to start is the beginning. So I wanted to get into ham radio for a number of years. And uh, in the UK, we used to have the requirement to do uh, CW uh, at at least five words per minute. And that always had me... I guess nervous is the right the right answer. It always had me kind of nervous. I was always worried that, you know, what if I couldn't learn the code? What if I couldn't receive five words per minute? And I didn't realize that at the time I could have used UHF and VHF without that requirement. Uh, I was so kind of wrapped up in, in needing to learn uh, CW that I guess I just kept putting it off. Uh, finally, in uh, around 2006, I came to learn that you could uh, you could take the tests, and there was no longer a CW requirement. It was now optional, uh, and so I did. And in 2006, I passed my first license, uh, which in the UK is the foundation license. Uh, I got my call, first call sign. Had a lot of fun on the air. Uh, progressed through to the intermediate, which is the the middle class, uh, where you get more power privileges. Um, extra frequencies that you can use and so on. Uh, the tiering system works pretty much the same across the world, so it's uh, it's one that you would all recognize. And then finally, a couple of years later, I progressed to the, the full license, 
and have my current call sign, Mike Whiskey Zero, Mike Whiskey Zulu. So that's where I started. Now, originally, my interests were just the just the phone, just using radio to to talk to honestly anybody that would talk to me. There was no real initial bug for either digital modes or connecting anything to anything else. That kind of came a little bit later on. So uh, the first kind of digital work that I did was with PSK, and I quickly realized that my postage size lot, small antenna, not very much power. If you started using digital modes, you could still work the world. And that was, I won't call it exactly a revelation. I knew that this was possible, but to do it myself, you know, that was quite an achievement, and it felt good. Uh, I pretty much carried on with sideband, carried on with those kind of modes. Uh, again, stuck with phone. That is what I enjoyed. It's what I did the most of. And in around 2014, so quite a few years after my initial call sign, uh, I got to hear about the DV Mega, and D-Star was becoming all the rage. And uh, I did some reading up and heard about D-Star and knew that you could use uh, repeaters. And I got to hear about the DV Mega from uh, Gus. That's uh, Paparecco One, Papalima Mike. And I got to hear that you could connect this thing to a Raspberry Pi and you could make yourself what amounted to a pocket-sized repeater uh, or a pocket-sized hotspot. So you could join into the, the world of D-Star from a little tool that you can fit in your pocket. And I already knew about the Raspberry Pi back then. And I was looking for something to do with the Raspberry Pi because I thought they were cool. And I actually didn't have any plans about what I was going to do with it. I wanted one and I wanted a project and I didn't know what it would be. And uh, as it turns out, just down the road from me, there's a guy called Brian Weigold who uh, who makes the the Western D-Star image. And I don't know, I know Brian, I've met him a few times and I tried his image and gave it a bit of a go. And um, that's kind of where I started. That's where the whole the whole digital bug really caught. All right, fantastic. So <clears throat> you eventually got around to creating uh, the, the Pi Star project. I, I'm going to assume creating. You can correct me when when you get around to answering this question. But um, so, what's like your history in in programming? And are you like maintaining it? Did you write it? Like, who's the core of how this thing actually came to be? So this all started from that initial foray with Brian's Western D-Star image. I used it, I played around with it. I thought, hey, you know, this is not bad. Somebody's really put some effort in here. But for me, and I've used Linux for a number of years, uh, probably since somewhere around 1999. Um, first got my feet wet with uh, SUSE Linux, that's quite popular in Europe. Uh, it was very much the kind of, the alternative to Red Hat, and for some reason, an alternative to the alternative seemed like a good plan. Uh, you know, there were Windows people and there was everybody else. And a lot of guys around me were using Red Hat and singing its praises. And um, a family member actually turned me on to SUSE Linux. And uh, I used that. And it was it was pretty good back then. I, I want to say 5.3 was free on Linux format somewhere around there. Um, and that was pretty good. I had uh, like a, a NAT router at home. Uh, so it would dial up the internet and a couple of machines in the house could share the, the whole raw and unmitigated speed of 56K all at once. At least it was 56K on a good day. If any of you remember dial up, 
56k was more like 30 most of the time. Uh, so the using Linux and having some admin ability had been around for some time before PyStar started. So I used uh, the Western DSTAR image. I thought it wasn't bad, but it had a GUI. And for me, the Linux ethos for me has always been less is more. If you don't need a GUI because you're not going to log into it and use a keyboard and a mouse, so if it's a server, then you don't have a GUI. The daemons don't need it, so just don't have one. The initial version of PyStar that was actually called PyStar actually did have a GUI because at the time, uh, the the software from Jonathan, uh, G4KLX, that PyStar is entirely built on top of, you know, without his great work, it wouldn't exist. Uh, the DSTAR repeater software and IRC DDB gateway, because back in 2014, there was pretty much, there was DSTAR and nothing else. Uh, those softwares were easy to use with a GUI. Uh, but I did notice that he also included uh, command line daemons with no GUI attributes at all. So you could start the daemon, tell it where its config file was, and there was no GUI output. So although I started with an image that looked not too dissimilar from the Western DSTAR image at first glance. Uh, the only difference really for me was I included a, a dashboard. So you could connect to the web server on the Pi and see, you know, it would pass the logs into into a dashboard. And some of that code is actually still in, in PyStar today. The current dashboard is built on some of that. And uh, that's where it really started. So. Yes, I'm the guy that, that started PyStar from the very beginning. Uh, I am I call myself the lead developer, but in truth, I'm the developer. I do take pull requests occasionally from, from other people. So if you do have a great idea, you can please talk to me about it. I don't promise to take them all. Uh, I do look at what people submit. And when it's sane and it makes sense, yes, I absolutely pull it in. Um, sometimes I'll say to people, you know, you have to sell this to me. You have to tell me why this is such a great idea. And a lot of that is because I, I never expect or I never tell people that I know everything because I absolutely don't. There are some times when people have a great idea. They need to tell me why it's great because it might relate to something that I don't do. So I started the, you know, making an image called PyStar and made it available. And it was on my website for a number of years. And uh, it took actually quite some time before it really got noticed. So although it had been there and it was downloadable, uh, it had probably been there between 2014 and 2016. And maybe only a handful, maybe 15 people even knew it existed at that point. All right. So now it's definitely come out. It's, it's everywhere that I've seen. Everybody I know who does anything with digital knows what PyStar is. I actually found out about it about three months ago, I think, because I wanted to get into some of these new digital technologies like System Fusion and DMR and didn't know anything about it. But anytime you would do a Google search for it, PyStar was the thing that came up. So the first thing I did was I got a, a Raspberry Pi hat and PyStar image, went through the basic procedure and got myself a hotspot running. So that's kind of where we're going to go to now. I did want to find out what language or languages PyStar is written in. So one of the side effects of being somebody like me, who isn't necessarily trained as a developer or a programmer, is that I have a Swiss Army toolbox of everything available. 
I mean, Linux is great for this. There are many ways to solve any problem you can think of. So uh, Jonathan that makes MMDVM host and a range of demons that enable PyStar to even exist, uh, everything that he writes is written in C. So the demons that actually do the heavy lifting that move the packets between uh, the, the little hat that's on your Pi and the network stack, those are written in C. Now, what I do is I stitch that together and essentially write the dashboard on the config page to make it more easy for you to just write the image. You hit the config page, you put in the minimum details that you can get away with, uh, press apply, and by magic it starts working. And that is written in um, a fairly decent mixture. So there is some bash scripting, uh, there is some PHP, there's obviously some HTML around the PHP to turn it into a web dashboard. Um, what tends to happen is that some problems are easier or better to solve in one way or another. And the PyStar remote control app is a great example. So we have a, a remote control app on board. You can configure it with your call sign and you can use it to do a number of things. So you can send a command from the radio and it will either reboot the Pi or uh, restart the service or even shut the Pi off. So you can power it off by sending a command from the radio and the Pi will shut down. As it happens, I'd never written any Python before, but that is actually written in Python. And it's written in Python for no other reason than it was the easiest way to, to get from the problem to the solution. Well, that's generally how it goes in the open source world. And since we're talking about open source software, can you give me an idea of what the licenses are on the various parts? I mean, is it all GPL? Is it all, it's all open source, presumably? Pretty much it is. Pretty much it is. So the dashboards weren't originally written by me. Uh, it's actually two different dashboard applications that have been stitched together by me. Uh, so one of those was written by Hans, uh, Delta Lima 5 Delta India. And uh, there was another one uh, written by Kim, whose call sign currently escapes me, but I can look it up, Kim Hubel. And those two dashboards are both open source and uh, available. And the PyStar dashboard is an amalgamation of those. All of that, I don't think there's actually any licenses that are listed for the dashboard, um, but to all intents and purposes, it's, it's just the, the usual GPL license. Um, because of the way uh, web applications work, you could make a compiled version, but there's just no point to it. So the languages like PHP are compile on demand. It just works. Uh, Python, much the same. You see the source code as I do. Um, when it comes to the, the software for MMDVM host, uh, IRC DDB gateway, uh, and the actual demons that move the packets around the digital world, they are GPL'd, but they have an additional clause which says that you only can use these for amateur radio use. They're not for commercial use. All right, and, fantastic. Well, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off there. That's okay. And I was just going to say those softwares, you know, belong to uh, Jonathan in the case of most of them and uh, Andy CA6JAU for the, the cross-mode support. All right, fantastic. So I will say that since it is quite an amalgamation of different programming languages and philosophies and ideas, it actually comes together in a really nice package when you look at it as the product, which is PyStar. So it's very, very coherent, at least. So let's dive into the hardware a little bit. 
Maybe you can run through uh, which single board computers it supports, which I'm going to assume is only the Pi-based boards, but which Pi's. Um, and then if you could maybe give a quick rundown of the um, the MMDVM slash ZumSpot slash whatever hats and USB sticks are supported under PyStar. I'll try to, and I'll get to why that's difficult in just a moment. So anything that the Raspberry Pi Foundation creates, we endeavor to support it. I'm very carefully not saying that we just flat out do support it because uh, they're making new gear all the time. So pretty much we support it. We support all the way from the original Pi B, uh, not even the B plus, you know, the original one that was the old shape. Uh, and of course, it's brother, the Pi A, which came out just afterwards. But all the way from those, all the way through everything they built up until the Pi 4 is usable with Pi Star. And we endeavor to make sure that that's always the case. There are some other boards that we support. I've been asked to do special builds for the Orange Pi Zero. That board is not too bad, but it has some inherent shortcomings with the Wi-Fi. Um, newer kernels apparently make it a bit better. I will get around to producing a newer build for that so that it'll be a bit improved. I don't think it'll ever be perfect. Like I said, there are some shortcomings with the Wi-Fi choices on that hardware. Uh, we also support the friendly arm NanoPi Neo and NanoPi Neo Air. Those are two not much bigger than a postage stamp. They are um, around and about a third to a quarter the size of a, a Raspberry Pi. Uh, quite well powered for their size. The Air version has onboard Wi-Fi and an onboard um, flash storage as well. So they're not too bad. And the GPIO pins, the ones that we care about at least, are in the same place. Uh, and now that brings me to some some interesting points. So there are a number of different hardware platforms that we support. And not everything works with everything. In theory, at least, we can produce images for almost anything that runs a similar ARM processor to the Pi. So as long as it's uh, ARM 7-ish, um, and actually when they're not perfectly ARM 7, we still support them. Um, one of the problems that we do have, though, is that on the various different platforms that are out there, GPIO can be quite different. And historically, we do struggle to make the GPIO pins work correctly on every single hardware platform. We get pretty close, uh, but sometimes the first release that we do Everything appears to work apart from the GPIO pins. They get they get a bit screwed up sometimes uh, because what I'm doing essentially is porting all of Raspbian to that board, uh, which is not quite the same way that most companies tend to do it. So an example of that, uh, the Odroid is another platform that we do support. The uh, Odroid XU3 and XU4, they're pretty powerful beasts. They're uh, octa-core with a fairly decent amount of RAM. Uh, you can run... Uh, onboard flash with those. It's not quite onboard. It's more of a, a flash module that you can stick on a header, but it's it's quicker than um, SD cards are. Now, those require a shifter shield to convert their GPIO version to a standard one millimeter dot pitch uh, header that you can use most Raspberry Pi boards on. There are some boards that will misbehave on here, though, because uh, in one location, where some of the boards expect a specific signal, they actually output 1.8 volts. Uh, so some boards, if you put them on the shifter shield on the Odroid, they will actually sit in permanent reset. Um, and that's because of one of the board designs. 
uses those pins that would be uh, pins 20 and 21 on a Raspberry Pi to reset the CPU and to get to the bootloader for flashing. So yeah, on the uh, on the Odroid with its shifter, what actually happens is it holds the, the CPU in reset and then you can't do anything with the board. So there are definitely, definitely issues with using uh, a standard looking hat across multiple families of boards, but for the most part, it does work. So there is an expansive collection of, of hardware that you can use. So what about from the hotspot side of it or the, the duplex board side of it? What kind of things are supported uh, via USB or GPIO hat? Now, this is difficult for me to answer. And the reason it's difficult for me to answer is, I mean, this comes back to where I said I, I try not to tell you that I know everything. I absolutely don't. And I don't think any one person ever will. The landscape is moving very quickly in the world of hotspots and hardware. Um, it doesn't stay still for very long. There are a number of, you might call them reference designs uh, for hotspot hardware. Uh, the Zumspot is one of them. The uh, the board by, um, yes, I'll have to have to look him up. The board by Flo and uh, Matt, those guys have uh, one of the reference designs as well, which has been cloned a lot since. Um, that's one of the ways to tell when you've done it really well. Uh, the entire world wants to make copies. It's a shame that the world does make copies that don't really stand up to the original, but nevertheless, that's the kind of thing that happens. There are a wide, wide variety of different boards that you can use. There are ones with built-in radio, both simplex and duplex. There are boards which are designed to control an actual radio. So you have the, the hat sits on top of the Pi, you plug it into the data socket of your UHF or VHF radio, and you can make full-scale repeaters with those. So it's difficult for me to tell you what's supported because we endeavor to support most things that are out there. There are a couple of exceptions. There are things that it's not really possible to add support for, uh, but for the most part, it works. So like ZumSpot and MMDVM boards and things like that are kind of the, the go-tos, though, for these? The short version is the software stack that we have is MMDVM, and D-Star Repeater. So if those softwares support the board you want to use, it should work. All right. So I want to move quickly and, and try and get through this part of it as quickly as we can, because any one of these could be an entire topic unto itself. But PyStar in particular supports a lot of different modes. Um, it supports Yezu System Fusion, DMR, D-Star, P25, NXDN, and Poxag. Um, and there's a lot of information there. But somebody might be asking at this point like what are these digital modes and you know how would i even get around to using them so maybe you could talk a little bit about just digital mode operation like system fusion and dmr in general and how you might even start using one of these modes before you decide you want to buy the hardware to do it so this is one of the key the key learning points i guess one of the key takeaways we make the assumption and it, it is an assumption that you will operate using a standard handy talkie that's in one of these formats, and you're going to use your PyStar as the network access gateway. So you'll use your standard handy talkie. It will transmit in a completely normal way, thinking that it's talking to a repeater or another radio. And the PyStar software stack using Jonathan's uh, excellent software, all that does is take in the RF, uh, retrieves the data packets. It doesn't convert them in any way. It just retrieves the data packets and pushes them into the network. 
And when packets come back, they go back up the stack and back out as RF. So one of the key takeaways is that there is no actual encoding, decoding, or transcoding going on in PyStar. There isn't the horsepower to do it, nor is there the hardware. So one of the things that gets people a little confused when they start out is, you know, where's the audio? Well, the audio from PyStar's perspective doesn't happen. When your radio transmits the data, uh, the data is packets that are wrapped in RF, and they get received by the board on top of the PyStar unit. Um, the firmware on that board unencapsulates the RF, just leaving the data packets, and pushes those into the software. And the software essentially, like a packet switch, switches them and sends them where they need to go. And when packets come back, pushes them back through the chain, and out they come as RF. When you look at it in that way, none of the modes are any different. So if you have P25, NXDN, DMR, D-Star, doesn't matter. They're just packets that are wrapped in RF or they're wrapped in network details to, to push them around the network. So there are some ways that we muddy the waters a little bit. We do have some crossover modes. So you can use your DMR radio and talk to users on a, a YSF, that's Yezu System Fusion Network. Um, I'm carefully not saying YSX at this point. We'll get to that later. Uh, but you can use your DMR radio to interact with those people. One of the side effects of doing so is that one of you will find that the audio is quite loud and the other will find that the audio is quite quiet. And that's exactly because we don't, we don't decode it and recode it. What we do is we take those DMR packets, unwrap the DMR wrappings off them, wrap them up to make them look like they're YSF packets and send them out. And that's the, the magic that Andy CA6JAU uh, brought to the party with his cross modes. So there are a couple of different crossovers that are supported. Uh, DMR to YSF is. Uh, P25 is a bit of a funny one. You can do uh, YSF, so uh, System Fusion C4FM radio to P25 on the network. You can do that because the wide mode on Yezu System Fusion radios is actually the same codec as P25 underneath it all. So that way is possible. Some that are not possible and using this method never will be is D-Star to anything else. And that, that just comes from the fact that the D-Star codec is, is quite different to all of the others. So let's say I wanted to use DMR. I mean, how do you even do that? Yeah, you have to have a DMR radio, but there's uh, additional steps. There are a couple of additional steps. And for the most part, we hope that you might have gone through them already, although not everybody does. So you need to make sure that you have uh, a DMR ID registered. Uh, not very difficult to do, but you do need to make sure that you have one. Once you have your uh, DMR ID registered, so that links a seven-digit DMR ID and your call sign together. Uh, now you're able to program your radio. That needs to be in the radio because DMR is an industrial standard rather than an amateur standard. So it's designed with uh, numbers-based IDs and not call signs in mind. So you need to get your DMR ID first, put that in your radio. You tell your radio how to use your local repeater. So it'll need to know a frequency, a time slot, and a color code. And once you do that, you're able to interact with your local repeater. You will need to do a little bit of learning 
to understand how talk groups work and how DMR works a little bit. Uh, it may seem complicated at first, um, but it, it's not. If you put a little time into it, it's not that complex. Once you understand uh, that pretty much the world over, if you want to talk to other people who are not in the same uh, repeater that you are, you'll want to use time slot two. Um, talk group nine tends to be local. That tends to be a standard. It's not universal, but it tends to be standard. Uh, there are a couple of standard talk groups. Uh, 3100, for example, is a good place to land. 91 is a good place to land. That tends to be you know, worldwide, no matter which of the networks you use. So there are a couple of things that are, are somewhat universal, no matter what flavor of DMR you choose, because as you will find out when you start doing a little research, DMR comes in a couple of different flavors or styles. There's Brandmeister DMR, there's DMR Plus, uh, there's DMR Mark and Phoenix. Uh, Mark, Phoenix, and Plus have, have become almost the same thing. Um, and there are a couple of, of other networks that are springing up fairly frequently as well. So there are new players joining in. Uh, sometimes they work out, sometimes not. I think it's a bit early, really, to call it in any direction about whether some of the new guys are actually going to survive. But I expect that most of what is available today is here to stay. So what about entry requirements for the other things? I mean, DMR, you have to have an ID and all that. What about System Fusion and DSTAR and, the, and those? It's a somewhat universal idea that you need to do some kind of registration. So on System Fusion, for example, uh, one thing I need to make clear is that PyStar is not able to directly interface with the Yezu X network. We do mention YSX quite a lot. That's more talking about the signaling and functionality from the radio, because from the radio perspective, the radio believes that PyStar is a more fully featured um, Yezu YSX capable repeater. So you can press the YSX button, you can navigate rooms, as they called in the YSX, so you can swap between rooms. Um, but there's a somewhat common theme. So whether it be DSTAR, DMR, P25 and XDN, uh, System Fusion, all of them do require that you do some sort of registration. So P25 or an XDN, there's a, a central database where you can register again for a number that will equate to your call sign. Uh, because again, these systems are designed for industry rather than ham use. Uh, Yezu System Fusion, you use your call sign, but if you want to use the YSX network from actual Yezu, Maybe your local repeater is a YSX repeater. You will need to register your call sign with them. And DSTAR, much the same. You use your call sign on DSTAR because it was designed for amateur use. Uh, but you, you do still need to make sure that it's registered to make sure that you can get access to all of the network endpoints. Uh, some of them don't let you in if you're not registered. Some of them do. All right. Well, um, um, offline, I'm probably going to talk to you a little bit about X a little bit more because uh, I do have a couple of X machines, So, <laughs> uh, but I don't want to dive into that. So we've actually kind of gotten down through like what PyStar is, when it was written, all of that, uh, the different networks that it supports and how you get into those. So now we need to talk about PyStar itself. So if you would, maybe give a brief overview of how you actually get PyStar set up from a hardware and a software installation perspective? So the hardware that you need uh, for most people who want to use a hotspot, uh, the best place to start is a Raspberry Pi. 
It uh, doesn't matter particularly which one you pick. I'd suggest that you start with a 3B or newer only because they have Wi-Fi on board and that makes life just a bit nicer. Now, if you've already set up Raspbian before ever, uh, this process is going to feel very, very similar. If you haven't, don't be too concerned. Uh, using a Raspberry Pi, no matter what you do with it, starts in pretty much the same way. You download an image, you push that image onto an SD card, you put the card in the Pi and start it up. PyStar is no different. You head over to the pystar.uk website, you'll find downloads on the left. Find the download that you want. If you're using a Raspberry Pi, it'll say PyStar RPI, so for Raspberry Pi. And there's a little blurb on the page too that tells you uh, which one you'll need depending on what board you have. You download the image. Uh, we do compress the image aggressively. So it's around 550 megabytes, maybe 600 these days. Uh, I do try and keep the download as small as possible to make your lives easy. You unzip the image, and then you have a couple of choices to make because uh, what is life without choices? Most people use uh, an SD card writer that they're already familiar with. If you've never used one, uh, if you have a look at the, uh, the information from the Raspberry Pi Foundation, I think they used to recommend Raspberry Pi Baker or Pi Baker, something similar. There are a couple of different tools you can use. And all you need to do is to write that image to the SD card using your chosen tool, uh, which depends on your operating system. If you're a Linux guy, you can get straight in there and use DD. Just be very sure about where that destination is. If you overwrite your hard drive with a PyStar image, you'll be very upset really quickly. <laughs> so make I sure have never done there. that. Oh, you've never done that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I've never done it either. <laughs> I've never done an RM-RF slash either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never on the route. Never uh, on the no. route. Nope, that's never happened. <laughs> Can understand why I could never take that disc out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so be careful about where the destination is. Um, in some of the tools, actually, it will prompt you, and it, it won't let you choose an insane destination. DD, being a command line tool, will let you do whatever your heart desires. That includes making really big mistakes, so don't do that. Um, but write the image once the image is complete. Now, when the image is complete, normally I would say, you know, eject the disk, pull it out, stick it in the pie, and carry on. However, uh, we've decided to make your life a little bit easier. On the PyStar website, under the heading of PyStar Tools, you'll find a little tool that will pre-create your wireless configuration, and you can drop that on the boot partition of the SD card, which will be automatically mounted in Windows and uh, Apple OS X, and pretty sure it is in Linux too. So as soon as the card image is finished writing, it will auto-mount that partition. Go create your config, drop it in there, and when it boots up, it will automatically join your Wi-Fi network. There's no extra Wi-Fi setup that you need. Now, if for some reason either that didn't work or you didn't do it, or maybe you didn't want to do it, if there's no network available within two minutes, if you're running a Pi 3 or later, the Pi will actually start up its own access point, and you can log into it that way. So you, you get a lot of choices. And once you're there, you navigate over to the dashboard. So it will present itself on your network as pi-star dot uh, local if you're using a Vahi or uh, just pi-star. And uh, you can hit that with a web browser and it will take you to the config page and you can step through the setup. And we, we try and make it as painless as it could be. 
It is pretty painless, and there are quite a number of good uh, initial setup high star videos on YouTube, which I will link to in the show notes, um, which is where I actually got my information about how to configure it. The basic configuration is actually pretty simple. I mean, nominally, you have to put in a call sign, your DMR ID, the frequencies that you want your hat to transmit and receive on. Uh, it may be offset if it's a duplex machine, or there'll be uh, no offset if it's simplex. And then you have to enable the modes you want to use, whether it's DMR, YSF, or any number of the above, depending on which kind of hardware you happen to have in your shack. Um, I know there were some caveats about enabling like every mode because pies are not super powerful and it could be a problem, uh, handling lots of different interaction. So you basically only want to enable what you're going to use, uh, or what you need to have access to, but it's pretty straightforward. And there are lots of videos that explain the initial configuration. And then of course, once you're past that, the sky is the limit because there's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do with it including some of the things that we were talking about earlier, like cross-mode operation and so on and so forth. Um, so in a hotspot configuration, you basically just have a radio that operates on some frequency, and then you have the hotspot that hears the transmission receives and transmits, converts it to digital, pushes it through the network, and vice versa. So it's pretty straightforward. And there are duplex boards that allow you to create little mini repeaters too. So... Um, it's pretty straightforward, and like I said, I'll link to some YouTube videos that will get you over those initial hurdles into getting PyStar configured uh, for DMR or YSF or just initial configuration. So um, let's talk a little bit about DMR specifically, um, just briefly. Can you explain, like if you're using a hotspot with your RPI and PyStar and you want to connect to the DMR network and you've got your DMR handy talkie, um, there is the idea of talk groups and private calls and reflectors if you want to talk a little bit about those okay i'll give it a shot i'm not going to pretend that i'm the best in the world at this there are definitely people who can do a better job but you know we'll give you an overview so we're going to assume that you've been through the configuration you've chosen the dmr network that you're going to use uh be that brandmeister dmr plus etc so you've chosen the network that you will use you've picked the master that's closest to you uh, that's always the best choice. Incidentally, you pick the one that's geographically the closest to wherever you're operating from, and the Pi is now set up. So on your radio, you'd want to pick either one of two methods of operation. Now, there's there's an older method, which probably won't be around forever, if I had to guess, where you could use it in a method where you use a private call to a four-digit number that will link you to uh, that reflector and then you interact with the reflector on talk group nine. That's not a method that people tend to suggest anymore. Uh, it was put in place to solve a, a specific problem, which is not really a problem anymore. So it does still work on some networks at least. Uh, Brandmeister, for example, you can still do this. Uh, so if you dialed in, uh, we'll say uh, 2350, that's UK chat one, um, that would be on 4401. So you would actually make a private call to 4401 on your radio, uh, press the PTT, and you'd get a message back saying that you're linked to 4401, and then you would send your traffic uh, on talk group 9, and that would magically end up in the 2350 talk group. Like I said, that's kind of a legacy way. I don't really suggest that anymore. 
it's better to wrap your head around using talk groups directly. So you make a, a group call instead of a private call to the talk group that you want to use, and then you don't need to move. So you dial up, we'll say 3100. So that's a nice, busy uh, US-based talk group. You set a group call for 3100, press the PTT, that's it, you're linked. You don't need to wait for a message, there won't be one. You might start hearing traffic back from that talk group instantly, uh, or you may not, it may not be busy. The next time you push and hold the PTT and make your call, you'll be heard across 3100 by anybody else who happens to be listening to that talk group. And if you're using a hotspot, you'll stay linked to 3100 until you move away. Where this can become a little confusing is you can be linked to multiple talk groups at the same time. So maybe you dialed up 3100 and there was nobody there. And now you moved on and went to 91, which is worldwide. And for some reason, there's still nobody there. So maybe you chose uh, 31672. That happens to be the five-star one. So we'll get a free plug in there. Uh, so maybe that's where you chose to go. Now, at some point, one of those talk groups may become active. They will remain available for 15 minutes without any use. Uh, but if somebody starts talking on one of those talk groups, you will hear the traffic. So it is worth paying attention to what your radio says is coming in. Depending on your radio, you may see that your hotspot is transmitting and you can't hear it because depending on the radio, it may only listen to the talk group that you currently have selected. So there are some caveats. Uh, when you set up the programming in the radio, it's well worth having a look at the list of talk groups, talking to your friends, seeing who may or may not frequent whatever talk groups, try and get a feel for what people with similar interests to yourself, where they may hang out. And then when you program the radio, most of them will let you set a receive list and you can put a number of talk groups in the receive list. It's a good idea because if you have traffic come back from a talk group that you've that you've keyed but wasn't busy, uh, like I said, it helps you avoid that, that possibility where your hotspot seems to be transmitting but you don't hear what comes back. As I alluded to earlier, DMR can be complicated. It's not as complicated as I make it sound. And once you've spent any time with it, it will make sense quite quickly. Yeah, and this could easily turn into an episode on DMR, which we are going to do at some point, and I don't want to do that because DMR, of these modes, I think DMR is the most complicated because it does use a version of time deflection, multi uh, time division multiplexing, so you have to know time slots, and it also has the idea of color codes and um what was the other thing uh, uh time slots and color codes um which are essentially like which uh the time division allows uh, a hotspot or a peer to um uh, have two different things going on at the same time in two different time slots so you have to, those have to match and then the color code is essentially like a pl tone for dmr so those have to match you also have to be on the right frequency um, and then DMR also has the idea of receive lists and scan lists. So you, you know, might be hearing multiple things coming through the repeater. And then there's configuring Brandmeister for static talk groups and dynamic talk groups and all that kind of stuff. And that's a whole, that's DMR and not Pystar. So that's a different episode we're going to do at some point, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Some of the other modes are a little bit easier to work and configure system fusion and D star definitely not nearly as complicated as DMR. They can all be done with PyStar. And then, of course, PyStar has the ability to cross-link modes. So you can do DMR to YSF. You can do YSF to DMR and so on and so on. So like if 
you only have a DMR radio, but you want to get into a wires X room that can be done with, with PyStar. Um, it's just a matter of configuring PyStar in the proper way. And I don't think we have really the time today to talk about that kind of thing, but there are also YouTube videos out there to explain cross mode operation and cross mode configuration. Uh, we may be able to revisit this in, in a future episode and talk a little bit more about some of the, the real complexity and the power of PyStar, but I, I want to keep this more of an overview of the project today, and at least anyway. Uh, there is the idea of the um, board, the hat offsets. I want you to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so in the, uh, in the design of the firmware, it is technically possible to use... Uh, a method to track the incoming RF signal and account for the fact that it may not be perfectly on frequency. However, it is, I believe, fraught with issues to get it to work right. So for MMDVM firmwares on all of the hats that you'll see uh, around and available currently, that isn't a feature that's available. What that does mean is that you need to tune the receive offset so that the receiver is very much aligned with the HT transmitter that you're going to use. The reason for that is that where analog, if you were uh, tens or even hundreds of hertz off the frequency, it didn't really matter, especially in FM. Uh, you wouldn't really sound bad. You might get audio that sounded a bit thin. So if your deviation was pretty narrow as well, your audio might thin out, but you'd nevertheless, you'd be there. Your range maybe wouldn't be so good, but it would all work. Now, D-Star is quite tolerant of having some kind of offset. Uh, and in fact, the error correction in D-Star is good enough that even when there is an offset, for the most part, it doesn't matter. However, uh, YSF, P25, uh, DMR all really prefer and in fact expect that there will be no offset. So the tolerances for the mode are very, very tight. And what that means is you will need to do some tuning. So if you you can look at the live log in PyStar and see what the modem is actually seeing, you can press the PTT when you're not linked to any of the networks. So you can just sit there and, and press it over and over again. And you'll see a figure that's called BER. So that's bit error rate. And what you're aiming for is the lowest bit error rate that you can achieve. It usually takes a couple of passes. So you move the receive offset, usually by about 100 at a time, and these are figures in hertz. So move up 100 hertz, try it again, move up 100 hertz. If it's not getting better, try going to minus 100 hertz, then minus 200 hertz. Try and find the sweet spot, dial it in 50 hertz at a time. If you get to the point where uh, 50 hertz in either direction doesn't really improve it any, you're probably there. If you can get under 1%, for the most part, that's going to work. Uh, you won't really get any dropout. The only one that's particularly fiddly is using the wires X commands from a Yezu radio because they're very, very short. The transmission length is very short. You have to get the bit error rate correct or it will miss the, the wires X transmissions from the radio and will miss the, the commands to list reflectors or change reflector or, or whatever it is you're trying to achieve. All right. Very good. That's definitely the information I wanted to get out there. There's a lot of talk on the, on the intertubes about the offset and getting that bit error rate down to make sure that your transmissions sound good and clean, don't create dropouts or audio issues and so on and so forth. And that is in the uh, expert part of the configuration of PyStar where you can actually 
uh, set the offsets, or you could actually get down into the CLI and change the offsets in the config files if you if you really want to get down in there. Um, so I did want to see if there were anything if there was anything you wanted to suggest as far as initial customization of PyStar that you find that makes it more usable, just like from your own experience that somebody might benefit from? Not really. I mean, fundamentally, PyStar is made for me. Um, it it exists because of a need that I had to make something that was easier than than what existed. Uh, Adrian, M0GLJ, found it in uh, 2017, uh, pushed me to allow him to tell the world about it because at the time you know a handful of people knew and that's it uh we recolored the interface and he started telling the world that brought in uncountable bug reports of things that i had no idea were broken but they really were um we spent a, basically a whole year uh chasing down a lot of bugs that existed that i'd never run into because they were things that i didn't use uh so at the moment for my needs it works like i expect it to if it doesn't fit yours, feel free to tell me about it, and we'll do what we can. All right. And do you know off the top of your head if there are any little quirks or idiosyncrasies or anything like that about the application that somebody who's operating a digital mode might run into that you can help out with? I know it's kind of a hard question to, to come up with off the top of your head, but if there's something... Oh, no, that there are some absolute corkers. So uh, one of them that's been bothering me just this week, uh, we didn't know it, but on Pi 4 machines... The GPIO pins come up in an unusual state, and it was holding the sum of the uh, hats in reset. And I've just released a patch. Uh, so if you upgrade to, uh, there's actually a build of 4.1 release candidate 4 is currently the, the latest and greatest build. You'll find that in the beta section of the download page. Um, that has just had a patch uh, as of release candidate 4 that actually detects if you're running a Pi 4 and if you're running the kind of hat that we know is impacted and uh, kind of resets the GPIO pins as part of the boot process, and it means that those hats now work again. So that's good news. All right. Any any other things like that you have right in front of you? Uh, there are, and so there is, you know, absolutely there are going to be bugs in it. There are going to be things that don't work the way that you expect. Uh, can I think of any off the top of my head? The biggest one is uh, the amount of CPU that the dashboard uses. I have some long-term plans for that. It will get fixed. Uh, that will improve performance on the Pi Zero a lot. All right. And what about, like, if somebody's installed the Pi Star image and then you've got this bug fix for the Pi 4 GPIO pin reset and they want to upgrade to the latest one, can you do the upgrade in situ? I mean... So we can do uh, minor releases. So if you're on 4.1, one, you can go between the release candidates. Uh, you can either use the command line, uh, pystar-update, followed by pystar-upgrade, and uh, it will do the upgrades for you. Uh, or you can hit the links in the dashboard. So pystar-update is available in the admin section, and upgrade is available from the expert section. Uh, the versions of pystar 3, there haven't been any major changes to those in some time, so you'll almost certainly if you've downloaded it recently, you're already on the latest version of that. All right. And I will also point out that you can go into the expert configuration panel, click on the CSS tool and remove that ridiculous orange color. So um, that was one of the first things I did when I installed it. <laughs> we put a lot of time into that ridiculous orange color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a special Pantone orange, right? <laughs> it's, it's, well, a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, trademark. 
trademark orange. And it's in all the YouTube videos, and now my pie star is blue, so mine looks very different. Um, I did. I was curious though about the reset. Um, like if you play around with the CSS to the point where your screen is no longer viewable, down at the bottom there's a button that says, you know, if you've gone too far with this and you need to back out click on this button but the button says factory reset now does that factory reset the entire pi star image or just the css just the css okay that's uh, <laughs> the wording on that made me a little leery of clicking <laughs> on it <laughs> however you can download the entire pi star configuration into is it an xml file or a json file it's a zip file so it, it is actually a zip file built of all the files that you care most about which means you can download the zip and actually go look at them. Ah, fantastic. But you can also use that if you happen to accidentally factory reset your Pi to re-upload all the configuration and you'll be back to where you were before. So if you wanted to change major versions, so you're running PyStar 3, you want to move up to 4.1, see what all the fuss is about, you could download your configuration, burn the new card, drop it on the boot volume that becomes available when the, the image process is complete, Stick that in your Pi, start it back up. It will reconfigure the Wi-Fi just like it used to be, and it will put all your settings back too. It does deliberately, and I'll emphasize this, it does deliberately not recover some features. So passwords, root passwords, uh, pretty much any password that you have to enter will not be in that backup. And it's done that way so that you can't get into a situation where You've backed up a, a Pi Star from who knows how long ago, restored it, and you have no idea what the password is. Yep, fair enough. Probably a good safety feature. That's all it's for. It's, it is just a safety net to, to help catch anything that happens. So you did say you're pretty much the only developer of Pi Star as it exists as in a composite project. So you've mentioned the fact that you do look for bug fixes and reports and feature requests and so on. So where would people send those? And also, where is the best channel for getting support with PyStar? Like, if someone has questions, where do they ask those? There's a Facebook group for people that like Facebook, and there's a forum for the rest of us. Uh, those are the best two. Uh, my email address is splattered all over it. You can email me directly. It might take me a while to get back to you, but you will get an answer. Even if the answer is, I don't know. I'm not shy about it. I'll tell you I don't know. Um, I should point out that I'm the developer of PyStar. But the software that we rely on very heavily has its own developers and development team. So MMDVM host and the related tools and IRC DDB gateway and DSTAR repeater, all of that is Jonathan Naylor, G4KLX. As I said before, without him and his software, we wouldn't be here today. Uh, there's the crossover support. So that's uh, Andy, CA6GAU. Anything that's this mode to that mode, that's Andy. Uh, both of those guys maintain their software on GitHub. Uh, I keep the PyStar dashboard on GitHub, and I keep binary releases there too. Uh, the binary releases are just pre-compiled versions of Jonathan and Andy's code. Uh, hardware guys, there's a whole range of hardware guys that do all kinds of interesting hardware. Uh, so it really depends on the hardware in question about where to go for help. We'll help you every bit we can. Uh, occasionally we run into stuff we can't handle and we'll try and send you the right way. All right. And I will make sure to include links to the Facebook page and the forum in the chat or in the show notes so that, uh, people will be able to go find those. And the other place I'd suggest for support too, we also run, um, a multi-reflector. 
This is kind of a side project because I have a firm belief that amateur radio should be about connecting everybody to everybody else and shouldn't be about making sure that D-Star people can't talk to anybody that's not on D-Star. So I run a special multi-linked reflector, which is on DMR, uh, YSF, NXDN, and uh, P25. It's 31672. And if you happen to be on D-Star, you can find it on XRF303 Echo or XRF587 Echo. There are a couple of other links to the same reflector. Whatever mode you come in on, you get heard on all of them. So DMR, YSF, P25, NXDN, D-Star, does not matter. You get heard on all of them. What was the second D-Star reflector? So we've got X-Ray Radio Fox, XRF303 Echo, and 587 Echo. Um, just out of curiosity, are either of those reflectors in Peanut? I don't honestly know. Okay. I was just curious. <laughs> I would expect that they would be, though. All right. Fantastic. So this has shown me, this episode has shown me that as deep as this dive into Pi Star has been, we can go deeper still. So we might have to actually have you back for another one because I have a ton of questions that have not been answered uh, related to operation with Pi Star. So I hope you might be open to uh, at least coming back and getting more deep into this topic at some point. Absolutely. And if, if you want to take some of these things as individual things, um, like one of the things I'd like to talk about is, is that reflector. Uh, it's a, I won't say it's a completely new idea, but it's, it's sort of a new idea where you just bring absolutely everybody together. There's not very many of them that do that. Um, if you want to do deep dives on individual modes, we can do that. Uh, if you wanted maybe uh, a kind of tour of the expert features of PyStar and some of the things that people may not realize are in there. We can maybe do that too. Uh, but absolutely, if you want to invite me back, I'll come back and talk your ears off. That would be fantastic. In other words, we have the next several deep dives already planned out, so that's great <laughs> for us. <laughs> uh, I love when things get easier for us. So I, I do want to wrap this up. I know Bill has a hard stop, and we probably need to let you go and get on with your day as well because you're much later in the evening than we are here. But I always wrap up an interview by asking if there's something else that you just had to say that we missed or that you want to uh, key on and let everyone know about the project before we wrap up for at least uh, episode one of Pi Star. There absolutely is. There absolutely is. There are now thousands of people that use this platform. And thank you to all of them for showing your support by using it. Uh, thank you to the developers for making the amazing software. All I do is stitch it together. I'm underselling what we actually do, but Frankly, without those original softwares, we'd have absolutely nothing. And thank you to the guys that helped me out too. So I have a team of guys that help out on the forum. I have a team of guys that help out in Facebook. And we would not be able to keep it all under control without every single one of you being happy to help and pitch in. Even guys that are nothing to do with the project or the team, if somebody asks a question and they know the answer, they're straight in there and trying to help out. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's absolutely what these projects are about. All right. Well, thank you for that. And before I wrap up, because I have commandeered this entire interview, I want to make sure that uh, Bill doesn't have any questions that he's formulated before he runs off to his conference call. Uh, no, you know, not not a lot of questions. I did want to comment on the peanut. I didn't see either of those uh, those uh, reflectors listed in peanut, so it's it's not at least in uh, my peanut application <laughs> that I just logged into. Um, 
so that's not available but yeah very interesting stuff i i enjoyed the uh enjoyed the understanding of 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 how it all works and uh it's making me more interested in it because i'm definitely not a uh digital vhf uhf guy so uh who knows that might change it might and it works on an odroid which you have one of those yeah yeah that one is actually over in uh bozeman right now but i have uh, a pi here a newer pi and i have a pi 4 on the way Ah, excellent. I have four Raspberry Pis, and I've just now started to use them. I, I bought them years ago, and I'm just now using them. I've got a Pi 3 that's running PyStar. I've got a another Pi 3 that's doing Echolink, and I've got a Pi B+, an original Pi B+, that I'm setting up for an IRLP repeater. So, yeah, finally getting to use these boards. All right, but we do need to wrap up here. So thank you once again, Andy, MW0MWZ, for being here today. And we'll definitely talk to you again because there's a ton more topics we need to address. You bet. 73 from South Wales. All right. Thank you. And I guess with that, we're going to wrap up this, uh, what's turning out to be the first edition of a Pi Star Deep Dive. And we'll probably get to more before too long. So this has been episode number 301 of Linux in the Hamshack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD73. for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The live show is recorded every Monday night at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at url.bcts.info stroke LHS live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or by using the contribute link on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash LHS podcast on the Freeload network and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke discord. You can also drop us an email at info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show-themed merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a local Linux convention or ham Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info for more information or visit the homepage for details. Until next time, remember to always heed your hedonism.
Linux in the Hamshack and the Linux in the Hamshack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.